Good morning. It's good to be with y'all this morning. Uh, if you have a Bible, I want to invite you to open it up to Hebrews chapter 11. Our passage this morning begins in verse 32 and actually goes into chapter 12, verse 2. Hebrews chapter 11, starting in verse 32. We were blessed to have Pastor Andrew preach through the Psalms last Sunday, and so we're now returning back to our sermon series through this letter to the Hebrews. As you're finding that passage, uh, a familiar way that New Testament writers describe the Christian life is by giving the, the analogy of a race, and it has athletic, obviously, tones to it, and I wonder as you're finding the passage, if you consider what you've experienced as a follower or disciple of Christ in those same terms, how do you describe to someone what, it, what is it like to follow Jesus? Does your mind go to a race? I think this passage this morning really challenges us and so please follow along as I read, starting in chapter 11, verse 32. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouth of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging, and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in the den in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Hear the word of the Lord. If you noticed, we have spent a good amount of time in Hebrews chapter 11, a chapter that many of us refer to as kind of the hall or heroes of faith. What I want you to know is that Chapter, we've, we've talked about this many times over the years, the chapter uh, distinguishing marks and verses of the Bible are not inspired. 
Some of you are going, what? That's not inspired by God. And so you get an example like looking at Hebrews 12 verse 1 and thinking almost that we've started a new thought Therefore, and he's moving on to something different, and if you lose sight of what just came before, it really actually won't make a whole lot of sense what he's actually saying in even the first two verses of Hebrews chapter 12. Everything that is being stated hinges on what came before, and, under, and understanding the therefore, you've got to look back in Hebrews 11 and understand these examples of faith of believers who had not yet seen the promise fulfilled. They knew of the hope to come, the Messiah that one day would come, but they were looking far off and actually never experienced what we now experience this side of the cross and resurrection. That's important as we look at our passage this morning. So kind of make note of that. And as we think about the Christian life being referred to, described as a race, I'm afraid many have bought into a Christian life that would never be described like this. <clears throat> many desire maybe what I would call an autopilot form of Christianity or full self-driving capability. So if you think about the Tesla models that are coming out, there's been amazing advancements in technology. And many actually, you may think even now, they're completely self-driving. That actually is not the reality. Although the technology has come a long ways, there is still, if you read in the fine print, active driver supervision that must be a part of the equation. You cannot just close your eyes and put your seat all the way back and decide to travel across the United States. And I'm afraid that many have bought into a Christianity where they think that it is just autopilot. I came to faith in Christ. I walked down an aisle. I said a certain kind of prayer. I've got my ticket. Now everything else is just kind of, it's autopilot. I'm good to go. It's a passive view of the Christian life. And what we see in our passage, what we have looked at and Hebrews chapter 11 does not compute with that definition of Christianity. The principal thought suggested by this analogy of the Christian life being like a race is not a life of laying down on a flowery bed of ease, but one of activity, one that would actually require discipline, a call to endurance. And so, this athlete in training, so to speak, is, is actually really helpful for us when thinking about what we've been invited into by God's grace. The Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 4 writes this towards the end of his life. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. He understood what it was like to be called by God to follow Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Not all of us like to hear that. Many of us love the idea of Christ as Savior, the idea of Christ as Lord over, ever, over every area of, of our lives, that there is nothing hidden from his rule and reign. 
that starts to make a little make us a little uncomfortable. Maybe maybe take a few steps back and and question, are you sure you're reading scripture the way I'm reading it or interpreting it? And this passage drives home the reality that yes, that very much is what we are called to be about. We've grown comfortable in the ease and safety and prosperity of a Christianity in the West. Many of us are still stuck in thinking, and this has been helpful. There's a a Reformed author by the name of Aaron Wren who has labeled a 20-year period just recently from 1994 to 2014 as a, a period in which we lived in the West and it was referred to as kind of a neutral world. If you can think back, if you've been walking with the Lord for a while or part of a a church for a while, from those years, 94 to 2014, as we interacted with society and culture, in a sense, it felt kind of like a neutral world. He writes, the reality is that no longer exists. We now live in an age of hostility towards the gospel. It's no longer a privilege a status in society where you are favored, you are now, if you hold to Orthodox Christianity, disfavored. And through a secular worldview, we are now viewed as hostile towards a different ideology, a different worldview. This matters when it comes to living out our faith in Christ. There will be many decisions Many mountains that we have to actually stand upon, important issues, being willing to endure hardship and persecution because of those particular stances. I think if you think about the way it was, 94 to 2014, we even now can be lulled into thinking that it's still kind of a similar atmosphere or culture. And the reality is we are at war with enemies that the Bible describes as our own flesh, the flesh, the world, and the devil. And we need to remember the devil never takes a day off. And so this analogy of the Christian life being like a race, and we are to be preparing ourselves, training, that is apt. That is actually what we need to hear as we have become lazy in many ways and kind of idle in others. If viewing holiness and spiritual growth through the lens of this athletic uh, event, this, this race, so to speak, strikes you as too time-consuming, too costly, maybe unnecessary, I would submit to you this morning that we have a problem. If you're trying to kind of even distance yourself from, man, that's not what I bought into. That's not what I've signed up for. Some of us really need to be shaken loose of that, uh, of that posture, of that position, of that understanding of a disciple of Christ. So Hebrews 12, 1 through 2 is, is like at a starting line, a shot fired from the starter's gun that says, you are in a race. Your soul is at stake. Your enemy is alive and well and seeking those whom he may devour. 
Put aside all distractions. Wake up, strip off every weight that hinders you, and run. Look to Jesus and run this race that is set before us. Now, a disclaimer before we get too far into this. The running of the race should not properly, biblically, cannot be misunderstood as a means of our salvation. Being justified by faith and forgiven of our sins, adopted into the family of God, is not the end, but rather it is the beginning of the Christian life. And so those who refuse to run may actually well be sending a signal forth to the world that is watching that they actually never truly even started the race, have even experienced the new birth. And so please make sure as we're working through this passage, the effort, the the call to, to walk and to run and to do is not confused into understanding that somehow that earns a right standing with God or that that earns your salvation before a holy and right God. So as we look at our text, I actually want us to start by looking at verse 1 of Hebrews 12. And then hopefully it'll make sense. We, We will look back into Hebrews 11. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. We are provided here in this first verse motivation to run. And this motivation is is given in the form or a description of a great cloud of witnesses that are watching, that are testifying. And that actually, with that knowledge in mind of the whole chapter that came before, all those who live by faith should actually be an encouragement for us to run. Now, it could be confusing when you look at the word witness uh, in thinking that, okay, is this some kind of weird uh, arena that's spiritually filled with, with saints that have gone before that are just sitting there from heaven watching us now? I do not think that that's where the author inspired by the Spirit is taking us. The word witness can also be one who in a court scene testifies. It's As you've read through Hebrews 11, we now have a testimony of those who walked by faith. They are testifying to us who are now called to run. And so they bear witness in that sense. They testify to something that they have seen, something that they have done. And so that is most certainly true of the Old Testament believers who came before us. They testify through their lives to the grace of God and that he is worthy to be trusted in this life. This is the great cloud of witnesses testifying That the God whom we say we serve, he is worthy. He can be trusted through all that life presents, no matter how difficult, no matter how hard. The author of this letter concludes by looking at a few examples in Hebrews chapter 11. In a sense, the way that that chapter ends 
in verse 32 and following is like a, a general summary of a triumphant faith of God's people in the face of really all kinds of opposition. Where before in the chapter we're given very specific names and even context of where in their life they lived by faith. And he, in a sense, just kind of runs out of space and time and starts giving us a quick list of people and then just a laundry list of all different kinds of trials and heartaches and sufferings that people have endured who have walked by faith. So full, for, first pulling from the period of the judges, Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, the period leading up to and establishing the kings. Samuel is kind of that bridge to King David and then into the prophets. So just real brief, taking us back to Judges. Barak was the military leader under Deborah who by faith led the Israelites to victory over Sisera the Canaanite. Gideon, if you just kind of look at a snapshot he, by faith, led a, if you remember, a very small 300 men. He led them by faith to defeat the Amorites and the Ammonites. I'm sorry, the Midianites. Sorry, Jephthah was the Israelite who, by faith, helped Israel defeat the Amorites and the Ammonites. And then Samson, most are familiar with his life, was the champion who led Israel against the Philistines. This barrage of examples is to help us see a few things. One is that if you remember the context, this was one of the darkest periods in the, the life of the Israelites. Do, do you remember the theme of the judges? Everyone did what was right according to their own eyes, what they thought was right, and it was leading people astray from the living God and his ways. And so the people would eventually be brought to just ruin and, and, and really strip down to nothing and cry out for help and God in his grace and mercy, not what they deserve, would, would raise up a judge who would, who would by faith lead and conquer and help deliver the people of God. And so we're given several examples here. And then in Samuel's life leading into David's, we see men who by faith walked out in integrity and faithfulness in Samuel's life. And then in David's, even in the midst of many failings, the one who was a man after God's own heart, who was, in a sense, a sign pointing to the Messiah, the king who would reign in righteousness. All of these examples of living by faith. Then we get verses 33 through 38. We see many unnamed people. It's an unnamed list of those who overcame every imaginable type of adversity through faith. We see described here victories as well as suffering and torture, imprisonment, and brutal deaths. These conquests and severe testings, opposition and suffering, illustrate something for us. And it's kind of hidden in there if you've got your Bibles open in verse 34. These believers living by faith were made strong out of, out of weakness. Everyone who has been mentioned, named and unnamed, are by faith made conscious, conscious of their own weaknesses and accordingly look outside of themselves. Look to God 
for strength. Now, this theme is picked up by the Apostle Paul in the New Testament in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 that I think is, is so helpful in putting flesh on the bone, so to speak. This is what Paul says. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave, something that he was struggling with. Many think that it was a physical ailment. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. The power of Christ may rest upon me. In his weakness, God was made strong. Now, I want to draw your attention to verses 39 and 40, because this is what I think really helps us understand chapter 12, verse 1, to be encouraged that we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. In verse 39, it says, And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. There's a purpose that the author is, is driving towards here. The author has set up the readers of this letter and us today to fill this reality. I don't know if you caught it when we just read it aloud, but everybody that is mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11 that is recognized as living by faith did not have all the blessing that we have as those who live on the other side of the cross. This is actually, when we say encouragement, some of, some of us need admonishment or at times rebuke to be, to be spurred on, to be awakened. The author is setting this up. All these examples all of these testimonies that are testifying to the faithfulness of God and living in complete trust to him were living in a state of promise. In a sense, in a state of the shadowy substances of the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, that was pointing but not yet realized in the New. The believers who were reading this letter if you remember, were tempted to go back to Judaism because of all the, the heartache, all the things that were being stripped from their lives, the tribulations, the trials of various kinds, they were thinking maybe what we have now isn't as good as what we had. And the whole theme of this letter is that Christ is superior. He is so much better. They needed to hear you are surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses who lived by faith and only saw it from afar. You have experienced the death, burial, resurrection of Christ, the substance, the fulfillment of all of those promises in the Lord Jesus Christ, who is now ruling and reigning at the right hand of the Father, who is our great high priest. Who is the one that calls us to follow him in this race, to run the race that is set before us 
enduring whatever this life brings. I, I hope you see this. This encouragement, this encouragement to endure is coming from a testimony of those who did not have it near as good as we have it. And the whole thrust of this is look to Jesus. As you run this race, look to Jesus. To kind of help you see this promise fulfillment, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20 says this, For all the promises of God find their yes in Him, in Jesus. That is why it is through Him that we utter our amen to the glory to God for His glory. So we recognize that this life that we've been called to live is not easy. All these examples also we can expect to experience as we walk by faith. It may not look exactly the same, but I think inspired by the Spirit of God, if you work your way through Hebrews 11, you are going to see the full gamut covered of all sorts of difficulties and struggles that can happen in this fallen world. And all of that is to help us understand that in all of that, we have our, our gaze set upon Christ, and by faith, we can run this race. We can endure. In our weaknesses, he is strong. And so we look to Christ as we run our race. Now, a spiritual faith is not a passive thing, but active energetic, vigorous, and a fruitful one. That's the description of biblical faith. So how should we run? Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, help us. How should we run this, how should we run this race? First, we must lay aside every weight, or as some translations say it, encumbrance. As the athlete whose name is entered for the games, takes off extra weight for action, both by the removal of excess fat. If they're out of shape, they're going to get in shape, and so pounds will be, sh will be shredded, um, whether that's through getting, getting fit or the removal of all necessary clothing that's, that's, that's long and getting in the way. They will remove garments and adornments at the time of the contest. So the Christian life is like that. The Christian must discipline himself and avoid anything that could weigh him down as a participant in the greatest of all contests, the greatest of all races. Now, what do we think the author actually means by this? Look at your Bibles. Let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. I think the main emphasis is obviously on sin. You see it right there in the text. And I think that is where the, the weight is, is focused. But I don't want us to go there so, so soon, so quickly. Because if you think about a race and all that an athlete does to get ready for it, it is comprehensive. So we're talking about the actual reality of getting ready for a physical event. There's much that goes into that. What's going on in the mind and in the body, the, the diet, the apparel, the time commitments, the discipline, all of those things. It is, 
It is full-orbed, and likely we should look at the Christian life as well. To just say, we're going to immediately go to just the sin and get rid of sin in your life. Well, yes and amen, but I want us to think a little bit more about what it means for us to get ready or be a participant in this race. Anything that has the tendency to dull your spiritual senses or to slow you down in your holiness needs to be recognized here as that weight that should be laid aside, that encumbrance that may be tripping you up or causing you to not be able to faithfully run. Sam Storms shared this very helpful insight on this passage that I want to share with us to to get our minds thinking about this. He talks about how we in our lives justify certain activities all the time. Whenever any, any activity or hobby or event or endeavor comes your way, you have to make a decision. Should I go there? Should I do that? Should I hang out with him or her? Should I watch or participate or eat or drink? And often we answer by responding to those kind of questions as, well, what's, what's really wrong with it? What's wrong with doing those things? Now, he goes on to say, if that's the only question you ask and really the only criteria that you employ, the answer will often be this. Well, nothing. There's nothing inherently sinful or wicked about this or activity or that. And honestly, if we look at the Bible, nowhere does it explicitly say or forbid that we shouldn't or I shouldn't do this or that. So why shouldn't I just enjoy that particular activity for myself? But instead of asking what's wrong with it, we should ask, does it help me to run? Does what is before me right now help me to run hard after Christ? Carefully assessing everything in your life, even the things that are permissible. There, are, there, there is much that is permissible in this life. But do we actually look through the lens of, does it help me run? Does it strengthen my faith or weaken it? Does this intensify my love for Christ or leave me cold-hearted? Does this make holiness more appealing and accessible or does it actually stand in my way? Does looking at this or listening to that intensify purity in my heart or does it actually bring corruption? Are you moving in the direction of things that glorify the Lord or are you playing in the mud, so to speak? These are really important questions as we look at this idea of lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. The answer that you give to those sort of questions will actually inform your day-to-day. It matters, perhaps even the the direction of your life entirely. The verse, though, does go on and says very clearly and specifically that we are to lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. 
And so, as believers, it is good to evaluate our lives and identify particular sins that we particularly struggle with. Not generalities that we know men struggle with this kind of thing and women struggle with that, but honestly assess what what do I struggle with? What is it that Satan, so to speak, knows the bait to put on the lure that gets me? And be willing to face that by grace, whether that means calling other believers into your life and saying, this is where I struggle, and I I want to actually take this seriously. Will you help me? For many of us, it is first step actually confessing a particular sin that really pulls you down. I know we've talked about this in the past, but we've seen throughout Hebrews this idea that our great high priest, because of his work on the cross, cleanses our conscience. And brothers and sisters, when you think about running the race as a Christian, when you are dabbling in what you may think are just light, sin, not real grievous things, and your conscience is burdened, it will affect every part of your life. You think maybe I can keep it kind of compartmentalized, but that is exactly where Satan wants you to keep it, or at least be deceived by the deceitfulness of sin and thinking that it can kind of stay over here hidden. When your conscience is burdened, when it is not clean, you need to understand that that will hamper your ability to run. It actually matters, the sin that we are participating in. And so let's heed this, this verse and, and lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. What is set before us? The Lord Jesus is, is the jewel set before us. This is the, the main thrust of the passage. Please do not miss it. Let us run with endurance this race, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Our gaze firmly fixed to him, who is both the goal and the prize. I want to remind you of the description of Moses in Hebrews 11. By faith, Moses considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. In Hebrews 11, verse 27, it says, By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible, keeping his eyes on the invisible God. We keep our eyes on the one who became incarnate, who actually became visible. And so the Apostle John in 1 John 1.1 says this, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. Again, 
be encouraged by the great cloud of witnesses and hear from the apostle, this incarnate one we saw, we heard, we touched. He is real. He is the one that we are looking towards. And all glory goes to Christ both by the, the, the example that he set before us and the power that he supplies for us to run the race. Now, I want to spend a few moments thinking about our Lord Jesus Christ. Christ's whole life on earth was the very embodiment of trusting God. And so he is our Savior, he is our Lord, he is also our example of what it means to live in complete dependence upon God. It was marked from start to finish in this total dependence on the Father and completely tuned in to the Father's will. Christ had set his sights on the joy that awaited him on the other side of the cross following the resurrection. For the joy that was set before him. And we are to look to Jesus both as the source of our faith, the, the founder, and the example of what it looks like to walk or to run this race. It was the joy, this is the joy that was set before the Lord Jesus. The, the joy of restored fellowship of the Trinity that he experienced before the foundation of the world. It was the joy of being seated at the right hand of the throne of God. It was the joy of leading, according to Hebrews 2.10, the joy of leading many sons and daughters to glory. This was the joy that was set before him. His joy is the joy of heaven over every sinner who repents and returns to the Father's home. Every lost sheep that is found over every son that was once dead and is now alive. That was the joy that was set before him. So the death of Christ was central to the, pur to the purpose of him coming to earth. Or in other words, if you, if you want to think, why did Jesus come? Calvary is the explanation for the, for the Bethlehem story. If you're like, why, why was he born in a manger? It was solely and completely to seek and save the lost. He set his face to Jerusalem, knowing full well what that meant. Arrest, false accusation, unjust condemnation, and the extreme suffering of death on a tree. But after that, resurrection, exaltation, joy. Do you realize that that joy is tethered to our redemption. He is the one who came and with the joy that was set before him accomplished all of that for a people. We have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. The determination to go to the cross meant he despised the shame. He refused to see the cross as shame and wore the crown of thorns for our good and the Father's glory. Nothing was more disgraceful than experiencing and suffering public crucifixion. If you do not believe me, 
the way that it is described, it is for the most vile and heinous criminals. And it was done by the Romans. And no Roman was allowed, no matter how bad they were, to be crucified, to be killed in this manner. That's how bad it was. It's important to recognize that the shame on the cross where Christ bore our sins is something infinitely more intense than just the physical pain. Was it the most excruciating? Most definitely, but it cannot stop there for, under, for, our, for our understanding, for us to grasp just how amazing this sacrifice is. Not just the physical suffering on the cross that made it so horrible. He bore our sins. When we, when we talk about him being our substitute, the wrath of God that is due us because of our sin, he took upon himself. The father turned his face away and poured out his wrath that we deserve on his beloved son so that those of us who are condemned might actually experience justification. Not because of anything that we do, but because of what Christ has done in our stead. That's what makes 2 Corinthians 5.21 so beautiful. He made him to be sin who knew no sin. Jesus was perfect so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Christ enduring death on the cross assures us that there is no person, however evil or guilty, that is beyond the grace and reach of God, the pardon and grace that he provides through the Lord Jesus Christ. In the Bible, we hear this description. The, the righteous or the godly died for the ungodly. The righteous suffered for the unrighteous. That is our story. If you are a believer who has been called to run this race, we are the unrighteous who, who, experience, who have experienced the righteous one dying in our place. The joy of seeing Christ and experiencing his delight and bringing him honor and entering into the fullness of life, which is laid out before us as the new heavens and the new earth, is what should stir us to run with endurance the race that is set before us. Was this not the incentive that moved King David, who lived by faith? Did he not say this in Psalm 16, verse 11? In God's presence, one finds fullness of joy. And at God's right, right hand, we experience pleasures forevermore. Joy and, and pleasure promised by God is what actually ignites saints of old and those of us who have been redeemed by the blood in the new covenant. It ignites us to run this race, to, to be sustained or endured in the midst of hard and tempting times. Remember, brothers and sisters, we are surrounded in a sense, by this great cloud of witnesses that are testifying to the life lived by faith and the promise that was held out to them and the promise that we in Christ, because of what he has accomplished, know is real and fulfilled. 
This is the joy inexpressible and full of glory that is set before us. May we lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run to lay hold of it. Let us pray. Our Father, we are so thankful for your word. We pray that you would help us to be encouraged by the testimony of the believers of old. May we have a better grasp and understanding that we are made strong out of weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon us. Lord, if we have been deceived into thinking uh, uh, or having a false view of what Christianity looks like, what it, what it means to be a disciple, into thinking that this is, this is somehow like a, a religion that you can say something up front and then just totally check out. Lord, help us understand this analogy that you've given us in your word, that this is a race. And may we run this race by your grace, for your glory. Lord, help us to take seriously what it means to put sin to death and to put on the things of the Lord. To take serious what it means to gather corporately, to build one another up, to not neglect the meeting together, all the means of your grace that you've given us in this life. Let us take serious what it means to have both a Lord and a Savior, a King who rules and reigns over every area of our lives. May the encouragement of this cloud of witnesses you use to, to spur us on. If there does need to be rebuke and admonishment, may the Spirit do that in our, our lives today as we, as we assess, as we reflect on your word. And may we look back at the testimony of these saints and be spurred on to be encouraged to live lives that bring you honor and glory and recognize that we do not do this in our own strength or power, but completely dependent upon Christ our King. And we pray this all in his name. Amen.